Hello. Welcome to the legend of Robin Hood of Sherwood. Chapter 4. A Little Help Robin of Loxley stood in quiet contemplation as he gazed through the trees. He could see Guy of Gisborne's men tending the fields, sowing the barley he had hoped to sow. Behind the busy planters stood Loxley Hall. The bricks were the same, the tiles on the roof as he had left them, the same mighty oak towered proudly above the little walled garden. Robin allowed himself a few moments of sadness before turning his back on his family home. Then his heart hardened and he renewed his personal vow. The abbot, Sir Guy and the sheriff would pay over and over again for what they had taken from him. Some time had passed since Robin's escape from the tournament and his band of men had grown a little. No travelling baron or corrupt churchman was safe. The men, dressed in Lincoln green, robbed from the rich and gave to the poor, and they were good at it. More than this, though, they enjoyed it. Secure in the knowledge they never stole from anyone who was honest and hard-working, they went about their illegal activities with something approaching joy. Before long, the outlaws of Sherwood were known as Robin Hood and his merry men. Robin turned and walked back to the caves in Robber's Valley. There he oversaw a training session. Every day, Robin, Will or one of the other master bowmen would instruct the men in the use of the bow. Robin and the other expert fencers would give lessons in swordsmanship and in the use of the quarterstaff. This weapon was no more than an eight-foot shaft of hardwood with which the protagonists struck each other. Both ends were used to attack and defend. Although Robin was proficient in the use of this unwieldy weapon, he wasn't an expert and neither were any of his followers. Sometimes he wished he could find someone who was a true master of the quarterstaff. Then his men could be trained properly. The day after the training was a Sunday. Robin of Loxley gathered up his men and told them quite sternly that it was time to go to church. The rich corrupt abbots may be ripe for taking down, he told them, but God needed to be worshipped anyway. They would go, he said, to a local church where the clergy was Saxon and proud. There they would hear mass. An hour or two later, the entire band, about twenty men, emerged from the forest and made their way to the church at Campsall. As they walked, they talked about how they became outlaws. Robin and Will told their stories again, even though most of the men had heard them many times. Much the miller's son spoke of his father. Will Stutely told the story of his son, who had run to Grimsby to work as a sailor. After a year and a day, he'd saved up enough money to buy his father's freedom, and he proudly made his way back to Nottingham. The sheriff had some charge against the young man invented, and witnesses were brought in to testify against him. The young man's money was seized and he was thrown into prison. When he was released, he was broken. He was forced to work the abbot's land, but was found dead a few days later on a pallet of straw. Thus Stutely had joined up with Robin and his men. The church was soon reached, and the men went inside. There they listened to the service and spent some time in quiet prayer a quiet which was dramatically ended by a cry. Look outside, Robin, the sheriff's men are here. OK, lads, shouted Robin, today we'll find out if all of your training has been in vain. Will Scarlet grinned, and then motioned for the men to take positions at the church windows. Medieval churches were as much fortresses as places of worship, and the windows of the church at Campsall were just narrow slits. The men lined up, two to a window, a tall man and a shorter man at each. Two bows pointed out of each opening, one just above the other. Will gave his order. Hold your fire until I say shoot. As they were waiting for the men-at-arms to get close enough, one of the other members of the congregation approached Robin. 
I see from the markings on those men that they belong to Sir Isambard de Bellarm. He's a lucky of the evil Prince John and a mortal enemy of my father. He's doing the sheriff's work for him again. Give me a bow. I'm an expert bowman and I will shoot for you. Robin looked up, bemused, but saw that the anger on the young man's face was real. And who are you? he asked. My name is Alan de Tremire, but my friends call me Alan Adale. Kit, shouted Robin, give this man Alan Adale one of the spare bows and some arrows. He will shoot with us today. Alan took his place at one of the unoccupied windows. A few seconds later came the cry everyone had been waiting for. Shoot, ordered Will. Twenty-one arrows leapt from the windows of the little church and arced towards Sir Isambard's men. Eleven men fell dead. Two others stopped startled in their tracks and then dived to the ground, trying to remove arrows from their arms as they did so. Only one was unscathed and he ran away as fast as he could. Two mounted men, one of them Sir Ivo Le Ravener, a friend of Sir Isambard, and the other Sir Isambard himself, turned their horses and galloped from the scene. One of the horses seemed to be struggling to move at speed, but the two knights escaped. Quick to the forest, shouted Robin. The church door was flung open, and Robin Hood and his merry men escaped and began to make their way back to the darkest part of Sherwood Forest. Alan Adale was to come with them part of the way until their paths diverged and he journeyed home. Will led the rest of the men while Robin hung back and talked with Alan. Meanwhile, a mile or two away, a very tall, very hungry man walked through the forest. He tried to be quiet and careful, but he really was a very, very tall man. He found it impossible to make his way silently. Every time he stooped to avoid a branch, he bumped into something and made a noise. He cursed himself each time, and then cursed himself again for cursing the first time. Soon, he smelled something absolutely divine. It was the aroma of fresh meat, probably venison, being cooked on an open fire. The man really was very, very hungry, and he made up his mind to ask whoever was cooking for a small piece of deer. It wasn't long before he located the source of the heavenly whiff. In a clearing, a man sat by the glowing embers of a fire. There were no flames, just the orange coals perfect for cooking. Nestled in the embers were three skewers. On each skewer was a large cutlet of meat. The meat sizzled in the fire. It looked so good, the tall man nearly pounced and stole it there and then. He managed to control himself, though, and entered the clearing, touching his forelock in deference to the man by the fire. Uh, might you spare me a small morsel for a poor wayfarer who's eaten nothing since yesterday? asked the lanky newcomer. Herbert the ranger looked up and scoffed. Go away, you oaf. I'm not giving you any of my meat. I am a king's ranger and only I can feast from the king's deer. Even if that wasn't the case, I wouldn't feed a knave like you. You're not allowed even to leave the road. Now go away before I have you arrested. The tall man tugged his forelock again and retreated into the forest. He let the ranger think he'd gone away and then he crashed back through the trees. Just as Herbert was placing meat from the skewers in between two thick pieces of bread, a blow from a quarterstaff sent him flying across the glade. The meat from the skewer flew into the air as its cook fell unconscious to the ground. The tall man watched the venison arc away from him, tracing a curve through the air. He ran and dove towards it, catching it just before it hit the ground. I don't like dust on my food, he said to the sleeping ranger. Then he tied the ranger up so he wouldn't interrupt his feast if he woke up, and proceeded to eat all three venison steaks and six large pieces of bread. 
Will Scarlet was in a hurry to get home safe. Before long, he and most of the rest of the men were in sight of the caves. Robin Hood and Alan Dale, lost in conversation, were a lot slower, and they took a slightly different path. In fact, they took a very different path. So much had they been enjoying their talk that they wandered off the track back to Robber's Valley and skirted the edge of Sherwood. They found themselves in a clearing near the edge of the forest. Hearing a gasp, they looked up. In front of them was a man trying to pull an arrow out of a highly annoyed-looking horse. He turned to the two armed bowmen and made a guess they were two of his attackers from the church. He drew his sword. Come here, vile knaves, he sneered. Robin began to take his own blade from its sheath, but Alan motioned for him to stop. No, sir, he whispered, this one's mine. I'll never have the chance again to take him out in a place where nobody will know who did the deed. Alan Adale drew his sword. I know you, Ivola Ravenna. You are a false knight, thief of men's land, an oppressor of women, and a robber of honest merchants. Prepare to die. Sir Ivo didn't speak. Instead, he let out a blood-curdling battle cry and then ran at the unarmoured Alan, expecting to carve him down in seconds. He was in for a surprise. Alan Adale showed himself to be as good with the sword as he was with the bow. Every mighty stroke delivered by the evil knight was parried and another more skilful one delivered in return. Alan knew he was going to have to be very accurate with his death blow in order to penetrate the armour, so he decided to use Sir Ivo's lifestyle against him. The knight was rather too fond of the good things in life and was slightly fatter than a knight should be. Alan Adale, on the other hand, was fit and lithe. He simply parried and struck and parried and struck until the sum total of Sir Ivo's fine dinners got the better of him. The knight started to tire visibly and his reactions became less keen as his movement slowed. Alan saw his chance. He leapt on the tired knight and knocked him backwards. Then, as Sir Ivo struggled to stay on his feet, he delivered an upward thrust to the knight's throat. It was as accurate as it was powerful and Sir Ivo dropped stone dead to the ground. Robin looked down at the dead knight. Nice, he said to Alan. You've dealt a blow to Prince John today, my friend. If you ever need my aid or that of my men, all you have to do is ask. Well, as it happens, replied Alan, there may come a time when I do need some help. My father holds lands just outside the forest, but we're poor. For many years I have loved Lucy, daughter of Robert de Passy. His close neighbour is Sir Isambard de Bellarm, and he, as the prince's man, holds sway in these parts. He wants my Lucy to marry Sir Ralph of Warsop, an old and treacherous knight. Apparently Sir Isambard owes Sir Ralph a favour. I hate to think what for. Lucy's father is trying to persuade her to go through with the marriage, but she loves only me. It's a long time since we've been able to be together, but we smuggle messages to each other. Sir Isambard has given them a year and a day to agree to the marriage, or he will bring ruin on the de Passys. I heard the news this morning. So sometime in the next year, I'm going to need your help, although I'm not sure what can be done. We'll think of something, replied Robin encouragingly. They had wandered on as they spoke. Alan was preparing to say goodbye to his new friend and make his way home, when he saw that Robin's attention was elsewhere. Both men peered through the trees into a clearing, where they saw Herbert the ranger tied to a post, while someone else ate his lunch. When the tall man had finished the three massive venison sandwiches, he was still very tall, but he was no longer very hungry. As he was finishing his third, the ranger woke up. You rogue! I'll get you for this. I will make you repent. 
You'll wish you'd never laid eyes on my dinner, and you'll wish you'd never even been born. The tall man laughed. Rant on, but remember, you are tied up and hungry, and I am full and free. Thanks for the dinner. It seemed that there was to be no more banter, but both men heard the rustle of undergrowth, unmistakably noise made only by men. Herbert called out for help in the name of the law. The tall man picked up his things and ran away very quickly. Robin Hood and Alan Adale, who had been watching for the last few minutes, almost unable to control their giggling, stepped into the clearing and fell about laughing at Herbert. "'Well, what's this?' Robin asked mockingly. "'The king's ranger tied up to a post by a wandering rogue who has also stolen his dinner. "'Well, I think you can stay there until one of your men finds you. "'And if I see the tall chap who is now full of your lunch, then I will congratulate him.' With that, Robin and Alan left the ranger spluttering with rage, tied to his post in the clearing. They then bid each other farewell and parted company, both sure that they would meet again. Robin Hood, with a lot more urgency than before, made his way back towards the depths of the forest. He reached a stream over which was a single plank which acted as a footbridge. Robin stepped on it and began to cross, but he stopped abruptly when he saw a tall man jump on the bridge from the opposite bank. "'Oi!' shouted Robin. "'I was on the bridge first. Jump down and let me pass.' "'Oh, no, 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 little man,' came the reply. "'The small pot should give way to the larger pot.' "'I don't think so,' said Robin. "'Now move over or take a ducking.' "'It's you who'll be pulling himself from the stream, little man.' Robin raised his bow, but the tall man placed his quarterstaff on the string and shook his head. This was a place where only the quarterstaff was appropriate. Robin, knowing what he needed to do, leapt down and cut himself a fine staff from a nearby branch. Then he jumped back on the bridge and raised his new weapon. He was somewhat miffed about being called a little man, since he was taller than most, but he had to concede he was facing a man who was a good foot taller than he was. Still, he thought, he could take him. Robin landed the first blow. He struck his opponent across the shoulders with such force that he nearly fell. The strike seemed to shake him into a state of some rage, and he roared angrily at Robin. After this they traded blows, each parrying the other's best hits. A whizzing blow from the giant shaved Robin's left ear and forced him to take a step back. Then he had to leap in the air as the tall man tried to swing low and knock his feet away. By now both men were panting, and Robin called for a brief truce so they could get their breath back. The tall man, grinning, agreed and leant on his staff. The truce was brief. Robin called for the fight to resume, and each man thrust and parried to the best of their ability. The contest swung one way and then the other, until Robin struck his foe on the head with such a mighty buffet that he had to fall. Any normal man would have toppled off the bridge, but the giant man was by no means ordinary. In spite of his buzzing head, rocked by Robin's direct hit, he managed to parry the next one aimed at the same spot. Then he swung with all his might and hit Robin Hood across the chest. Nobody could have withstood such a hit, not even Robin. He lurched sideways and fell into the cold water below. Robin dragged himself to the bank of the stream and was surprised to find the tall man offering him his hand. He accepted and was lifted out of the water. Then they sat down on the bridge together. That was a great fight, said the tall man gleefully. Robin allowed himself a smile. Yes, indeed. I'm not often beaten, but today I've lost fair and square. Tell me your name, stranger. I'm John of Mansfield. 
I used to be in the employment of the Lord of Mansfield, but one morning, after a back-breaking day's work, I slept too late. I was to be lashed forty times, but instead I grabbed the whip from the man who was to administer the punishment and whipped him instead. After that, I fled and came here to the forest. I was hoping to find the man they call Robin Hood. I hear he and his men tied up Sir Guy of Gisborne and sent him off with his head lashed to the smelly end of his horse. I've come here to try and join his crew. Robin smiled and blew on his horn. He blew the tune which summoned the rest of the men to him. Slowly it dawned on John of Mansfield he was already in the presence of Robin Hood. Robin extended his hand to him and invited him to join his band. Come with us, he said. I think we still have plenty of the Prior of Newark's fine wine left. We will celebrate. John agreed, and then told Robin that his full name was John Little. Robin, of course, found this rather amusing, given that John was so tall. Only a few minutes later, the rest of the merry men arrived by the bridge. Will Scarlet, wearing a broad grin as usual, approached his master, Gilbert of the White Hands by his side. Robin, you're soaked through to the skin, he said, frowning. Well, said Robin, that's because this fine fellow here toppled me off the bridge with his staff. I'm afraid to say I was beaten in a fair fight. Will scowled and began to draw his sword, but Robin motioned for him to stop. Smiling, he stood up and gathered the men around him. Allow me to introduce to you the latest addition to our merry band. This is John Little of Mansfield, who's run away from his master after giving one of his henchmen a good whipping rather than take one himself. Our fame is spreading, my friends. This man's travelled here just to join our fight against the evil barons and churchmen who rule. He's proved himself by giving me a sound beating with the quarterstaff. His job now will be to train me and all of you until we are as good as he is. John Little, stand up and take a bow. John stood up and his immense size became apparent to the men. Will Scarlet began to giggle. Still chortling, he extended his hand to the newcomer. The hand he shook was in proportion with its owner, and Will felt his own being crushed. He withdrew it to save it from any further damage, and then spoke through his mirth. John Little, eh? Well, that's a fine name for a tiny man like you. Welcome to Sherwood, my new friend. Then he turned to the rest of the men. Friends, I give you John Little. Such a sweet and pretty babe he is, that from now on he will be known as Little John. There was, of course, merriment among the merry men, followed by meat, wine and singing. Even outlaws have to have a good time sometimes, especially merry ones. Next time, we'll find out what happens when Little John goes spying in the sheriff's house. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please check out the website wwwmythandhistory 2 .podbean.com. There you will find a donation button. The podcast is and will always remain free, but any help with hosting costs is always welcome. If you'd like to give any feedback or just ask questions, then please contact me by email mythandhistory at gmail.com or on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. So, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.